2: Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a question that has been just bugging me increasingly over the last few years, even more so after that coup attempt last January. And it is this. Has America become ungovernable? Now, just hold on. Just let me let me tease this out a little bit. President Joe Biden won the 2020 election with more than 81 million votes, 7 million more than Donald Trump got a clear majority on an agenda that includes things that are demonstrably popular with Americans like Protecting your right to vote. 62 percent of voters support making it illegal to prevent someone from registering to vote. Police reform, particularly after the George Floyd murder. More than two thirds of Americans say our criminal justice system needs either a complete overhaul or major changes. There's also gun reform, not ending gun ownership or confiscating people's firearms. Most Americans don't want that but just making it so that our kids don't have to do active shooter drills and we can go to a Walmart in Texas or on the New York subway without having to duck and cover from some mass shooter with an AR-15. A majority of Americans think gun laws in this country should be more strict. That has 53% support. Majorities of women and men support women having a right to choose when it comes to pregnancy. And that number goes up even more when it comes to women and girls who have been victimized by rape or incest. There's also all that stuff that was in the Build Back Better bill, things Americans like, like expanding Medicare coverage and universal pre-K and making prescription drugs affordable and reducing the cost of health plans under the ACA, extending the child tax credit and fighting climate change by investing in clean energy and away from dirty fossil fuels, all that popular stuff. And despite what Republicans try to tell you, the vast majority of Americans support some form of student debt forgiveness, especially younger Americans. Yet none of those things are law, and none of them are likely to become law, despite Democrats narrowly controlling both branches of the federal legislature and the White House. Why? Because one or two senators can literally shut down every one of those things over the will of hundreds of representatives in the House, which has passed most of the things I just mentioned. And without 60 senators' approval, 327 million Americans cannot have nice things. Oh, And one of our two viable political parties planned an actual insurrection and are probably going to do it again. So I ask again, is America at this point in our history and with a system that was designed by European men who certainly never envisioned racial and gender equality or the kind of diversity that we have today or that anyone not like them would ever share power in this country? Are we ungovernable? Joining me now is my friend Lawrence O'Donnell, host of the great The Last Word here on MSNBC. All right, Lawrence, talk Uh, me down if you can. Thanks
3: for for giving me a nice, easy subject. Uh, We'd
2: like to keep it simple.
3: This is simply the biggest subject I've ever discussed on television. It it is an enormous question. And and for some periods of our history, uh, the country did seem reasonably governable. And reasonably well governed, uh, if you were white and if you had property and, uh, but then as this, you know, as the Civil War approached, slavery was tearing the country apart and it seemed like, no, these, this is a, this is a gigantic issue, uh, on which two different sections of the country have completely different views to the point that a group of the states said, you know what? We don't think this can be a country. Right. Uh, we're we're going to make, we're going to call us ourselves the Confederate States. So we saw that, that, that belief took hold very strongly that no, it cannot be. It's, it, you're asking this one place to absorb uh, too much conflicting thought. Mm-hmm. And so you look at the United States now and, and, and you say, well, we're not, we certainly are not governing as a country. Right. Uh, so, w- the governable question uh, is clearly one that that begins with we're not governing. Yeah. So, on a, on something like abortion, mm-hmm. the notion that, well, you know, in some states you have certain rights, and in other states you have you don't have the same rights, is the kind of thing that literally defines different countries, right? You know, that's why there's a Luxembourg and a Belgium instead of let's just put them all together, you know, and, and, and not, but it's not just that it's this other thing that's been with us forever that no one even notices as uniquely peculiar to the United States of America, how much your tax burden is Depends on where you live. Right. It depends on the state government that that you live under, and there are states that have no income tax, there are states that have much higher sales taxes, states with higher property taxes, that are taxes, and that's that's the, uh, another thing that defines elsewhere in the world, Different separate countries, countries right, right. you know, and, uh, and and so that we have these really peculiar things that have developed because we have these 50 different governments within the federal government that make this place behave as more than one country. And then always, but then always, we must live under this sort of Faith and declaration that we are one yeah, country, yeah. and I say it is both a declaration and true, and it's a law. But there's also a faith element to it. Yeah, there's there's that thing, and it comes out when people say things like, "Oh, we're better than this." Yeah well maybe in your neighborhood you are <laughs> right. or maybe in your state you are yeah. but no uh, you know not. i don't who's the we that you're yeah. talking about when you say that and that's an expression of faith about yeah. who we america is uh, as a group of people and and so uh, this has been we're we're now in a period where questioning the very governability of the 50 states is is a very, very ripe question. And we go we go through decades where it doesn't feel like a reasonable question at yeah. all. You know, it, it feels like, oh, no, we're kind of moving along. And, yeah, that was a struggle. And we, yeah. we got that. And then we they did get voting rights in 65. You know, you, you, you do these things that make you feel like that America does these things, makes it feel like that it's functioning as a country and progressing. And then you have these fantastic national successes like the space program, sure. and, you know, the first person has set foot on the moon and all that. And that's very, that that's a national effort. It was a definitely, that was a 50 state effort with talent from 50 right. states. And so there's all those rallying moments, you know, in our history where you you can absolutely, there's no
2: Doubt about it, you know. The- well, can, can, I, can I ask you about that? Because the, the rallying moments you're talking about took place at a time, and, and I feel like this is part of the challenge for Joe Biden. The time when Biden grew up, mm-hmm. uh, and the time he recalls the Kennedy era, right? Mm-hmm. That was a time when there was almost no. Gender or racial diversity in the main legislative bodies. Right. Right? We're an anti-majoritarian government. We, we're de- right. It's designed to be anti-majoritarian on purpose. Right, But the only agreements that had to be made had, be, had to be made between this old white guy and that old white guy. Mm-hmm. And this old white guy and that old white guy could go have a cigar and decide, mm-hmm. well, fundamentally, we agree on basically the same things. It gets a lot more difficult to even do this. I doubt you could do the space program now because you'd have one, you know, Joe Manchin saying, (laughs) well, no, because I don't want this and I don't like the spending. And then you have Republicans saying, no, we don't want to do anything because a Democrat is president. Therefore, no space program. Right? Right. And then you have. African-Americans, Latinos, LGBTQ people who aren't even in the room. That infrastructure bill, they weren't even in the room mm-hmm. when they divided up $101.7 trillion. So, you, to me, with the diversity of the country and the different interests, and then one party say they don't even care about democracy at all, how do you actually get the Senate Let's just say the Senate. The Senate is
3: ungovernable. Well, the Senate, now the case closed. The Senate is a disaster. It is a structural disaster. It was a disaster at birth, but it got away with it for a very long time. This notion of two per state. The founders never dreamed there was going to be a place with this name California, right. with all these Spanish place names within right. it, uh, that was going to have a population, you know, that approached the size of France. They, right. they didn't think they were going to have states like that. Right. You know, New York was your your kind of biggest thing at the time, and it was, wasn't that much bigger than the other ones. And so the the two per state thing has become an utter Disaster. And, and that, you know, working, you know, across the street there in the United States Senate in the 1990s was when I really started to get focused on this subject because I was working for a big state, right? Yeah. I was working for New York State, working for Senator Moynihan. And you're looking at, at, you know, funding issues for like, for mass transit, and it's being held up by Alabama. Right. And you go, well, not just a minute. Uh, <laughs> right. First of all, the funding for this is all coming from the rich states like New York and California. States. Anyway, and, and what, do you, what do you, why is, how does this happen? And so it's a fundamentally and relentlessly and permanently anti-democratic institution. Yeah. And more people are going to always vote for Democratic senators yeah. uh, in the United States Senate, even when they end up with less Democratic yeah. senators in the Senate uh, because the Dakotas, you know, get four senators. Yeah. You know, there's populations the size of Staten Island that get two senators. Well,
2: so then in a bit in, a, in, a, in something like student loans, let's talk for specific. Let's get, drill down to one specific issue. It would be enormously politically helpful for Joe Biden if he could get student loan forgiveness, because one of the reasons he's underwater with young voters is the stuff that he ran on, you know, Police reform didn't pass. You know, all the stuff we mentioned at the top did not pass. But this would actually materially help millions of people who are millennials and younger. Um, And just a lot of people of color would just help him politically. He cannot pass it because Joe Manchin is going to say no. What do we do about
3: that? Well, you know, I see one thing I'd like to do about it is I would like to ask the voters who say, unless you forgive my student loans or a significant portion thereof, I am not going to vote for you. I'm going to ask them how that became their single issue in the United States of America. And are they willing to let everything else, everything else, be handed over to the Republican Party? The Republican Party isn't going to forgive one penny no, they of, of your student loans. And so there's this very peculiar notion that I guess you can determine in polls uh, that Democratic voters, or there's a group of Democratic voters who are purely transactional. Purely, 100%. It's, you forgive my student loans and I vote for you. And if you don't, I don't care who's on the Supreme Court. And I don't care who any of the federal judges are anywhere ever. And I don't care about anything else. You know who doesn't vote like that? Republicans. Republicans. No. Ever. Ever. And oh, by the way, you don't, you, you make the Republican voters get promises. The promises are not delivered except the tax cut promise. Right. They always deliver that one. And they don't deliver any other ones. And the Republican voters say, Okay, when do you want me to vote again for a Republican who will not build the wall, who will not do X. But I'm going to vote for that person because their votes actually are not transactional in the way that we are assuming that student loan vote is.
2: Yeah. Well, I would argue and we are out of time that one of the reasons Republicans get away with that is they make promises that they that cannot be kept but that can seem to be kept. The wall is never going to be built. Mexico is never going to pay for it. But Donald Trump could fly down to the border, point to something, say that's the wall, and that's good enough for his voters. They could say, we're going to ban all Muslims from the U.S. i are not going to ban them all, but they can get some Muslims banned and then they feel good. He did feel good stuff, but the only thing he actually materially did was tax cuts for the rich. And his voters don't care.
3: Well, the media plays a, a big role here in presidential yeah. campaigns because they say to a presidential candidate, what are you going to do? Yeah. And the candidate then says something that is legislative. Right. And they think that's an answer. And it's a joke. When, it, when <laughs> someone says, I'm going to do X and it be, and it happens in the legislature, yeah. they're just guessing. Yeah. It's, it's not a promise. It's yeah. just a guess. Well, I we, could can, go on we on. can do
2: this for an hour, guys. <laughs> and trust me, believe me, we could do this for an hour. But I, I, I'm not allowed to do that because I have to go to a commercial break. Lawrence O'Donnell, uh, we will see you at 10.00. P.M. Eastern Standard Time. Can I borrow that chair at 10 p.m.? Oh, I thought you were going to say the jacket. The chair, well, the the
3: jacket, too. Uh, Because I am am here in the Joy studio in Washington, and I am going to partake in the joy of this studio at 10 p.m.
2: We will definitely change the logos. Uh, You probably don't want the jacket, but you can have the chair. The jacket? It's a deal. Leave the jacket. But think about the jacket. Okay, Okay. Lawrence O'Donnell. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate it. Be sure to watch Lawrence tonight on The Last Word. 10 p.m. Eastern, right here. On MSNBC. Up next on The Readout, President Biden calls for an enormous new military package for Ukraine as concerns grow that Russia is getting ready to escalate its brutal invasion beyond Ukraine's borders. Also, the audio tapes and text messages shine new light on the Republican effort to undo the last election. So how is that that no how is it that no members of Congress have faced any consequences for their actions? Plus,
4: let's say you take these books out of the library. What are you going to do with them? You going to put them in the street? Light them on fire? What are you, where, where are they going?
5: Representative Sexton,
4: I don't have a clue, but I would burn them.
2: Democratic State Representative John Ray Clemens of Tennessee, who called out the book banners and the would-be book burners, joins me tonight. The readout continues after this.
6: and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Today is Yom HaShoah, the internationally
2: recognized Holocaust Remembrance Day, a day set aside to commemorate the approximately 6 million Jews murdered by Nazi Germany and their collaborators. It's a day meant to reflect on the unspeakable atrocities and horrors of World War II but also as a stark warning to the world to never let it happen again. And yet, here we are. This time, Russian troops are murdering Ukrainians in an attempt to erase their history, culture, and identity. In Bucha, massed graves continue to be unearthed as families line up to identify the bodies of their loved ones. Forensic experts are working around the clock to identify the more than 400 people murdered by Russian invaders there. In Kherson, a city under Russian occupation in the East, Russians are wiping out any trace of Ukraine, replacing their flag, their language, their currency, despite public protests. Some 300 men have been kidnapped and tortured, and women are in constant fear of rape at the hands of Russian soldiers. Today, Russian bombs struck the capital, Kiev, killing one and injuring several more. Russia has warned Western countries not to, quote, «test our patience» after the United States and Britain publicly backed Ukraine's right to strike Russian territory, which followed a spate of mysterious fires on the Russian side of the border. And this week, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov warned that the risk of a nuclear conflict was serious and real. Today, President Biden submitted a request to Congress to provide Ukraine with an additional $33 billion, a dramatic increase in U.S. funding, as well as new legal tools, tools to siphon assets from Russian oligarchs.
3: We're not attacking Russia. We're helping Ukraine defend itself against Russian aggression. And just as Putin chose to launch this brutal invasion, he could make the choice to end this brutal invasion. Russia is the aggressor. No ifs, ands, or buts about it.
2: Earlier this week, Russia cut off gas supplies to two European allies, Bulgaria and Poland, after insisting they pay in rubles, which is forbidden by sanctions. They refused to pony up, and so the Russians cut them off. The president of the European Commission called it what it was, blackmail. However, Bloomberg is reporting that some European countries from Italy, Hungary and elsewhere have met Putin's demands. Russia has been using that money to fund its attack on Ukraine. According to The Guardian, Russia has doubled its revenues despite selling less gas. The soaring prices caused by their invasion has been a financial boon. With me now, former CIA Director John Brennan, who was an MSNBC national security analyst and former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul, who was an MSNBC international affairs analyst. Thank you both for being here. Director Brennan, I do want to start with you because this is the uh, unending puzzle and tangle of how do you deal with a global bully who also has nukes and who also holds the gas tank. Um, Do you take seriously Russia's threats to use nuclear weapons, number one, and number two, should Europe respond to their threats by saying, to hell with your gas?
5: Well, first of all, I think we have to be mindful that Russia does is a nuclear power. Uh, but at the same time, I think this is a lot of nuclear saber-rattling as a way to threaten and to intimidate the West and Europe. And so, therefore, I think that Putin still wants to try to win this war with conventional military uh, might uh, and not going to escalate uh, to uh, a nuclear uh, realm. As far as Europe is concerned, uh, I do think uh, what uh, Putin is trying to do now by cutting off gas supplies to Bulgaria and to Poland, is to demonstrate that he has some leverage with them and is trying to fracture the NATO alliance that has been very, very strong and determined to provide the support that Ukraine needs. And so therefore, I would expect that Putin is going to continue to try to put pressure on the West and Europe using these levers that he has, particularly on the energy front, but uh, I think, uh, based on my discussions with some Europeans, that they, are, they realize that the threat that Europe poses, not just to Ukraine, but to Europe more broadly, is very, very serious. And this is the time for them to stay strong.
2: Uh, same question to you, Ambassador McFall. Do you take seriously Russia's threats, knowing them as you do, knowing Putin and his people as, as you do? As you do? Uh, do you take their nuclear threats seriously? And should, and should the rest of Europe just tell them to hell with their gas?
7: Well, I agree with John. I think we need to listen seriously. When you're talking about a nuclear power, everything is serious. But if you look and listen more closely, I think it's a smaller threat than I think people understand. At the beginning of the war, Putin said, I'm going to put my weapons on on alerts. And he was talking about strategic nuclear weapons. We now know that he didn't do that. Uh, There was no change in their status, Uh, and he rolled out two very important spokespeople, his his spokesperson, Mr. Peskov, and the former president, Mr. Medvedev, to say, we'll only do that when there's an existential threat against Russia, and thankfully there isn't, as President Biden just said. So I think that's off the table. A tactical nuclear weapon is also something that's been threatened and reported that maybe they'll use if they're losing the war, right? Right. Uh, but again, I, I think it's a low probability event, and I also think we should be careful to assume that if they use, God forbid, a tactical nuclear weapon in, in Ukraine, that it'd have the same effect as it did in Japan in 1945. I can imagine it having the opposite effect, and the Ukrainians deciding to fight even further because mm. of, the of a use of a nuclear weapon against them.
2: And and I, I, to that very point, because there doesn't seem to be any. I'm going to stay with you for one moment, Ambassador McFall incentive for Ukraine to even negotiate with these people at this point. Here is a story from the BBC. Ukrainians are being deported to Russia and mistreated. One Ukrainian Red Cross volunteer was captured by Russian forces, per the BBC, and deported to Russia. He was blindfolded, beaten with rifles, punched and kicked. After being held for nearly a week in Ukraine, he was transported with others to Belarus. He was then transferred to Russia, where he was beaten again. He was returned to Ukraine after a prisoner prisoner swap, a a bit more, in Belarus— These these prisoners were given an identity document. It says it was issued by the military of the Russian Federation and describes his place of birth as the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, which is how Ukraine was known before the breakup of the Soviet Union. These people, there's no point negotiating with Russia at this point, right? Ukraine just has to beat them.
7: Well, it's very hard to negotiate when they're doing those things. And I want to remind everybody, uh, Ukraine's a democracy, right? Uh, so even if Mr. Zelensky wanted to negotiate, it would be very difficult given these horrific, horrendous, i run out of adjectives to describe it. Yeah. I don't even like the word war, by the way, because it's not war when you use cruise missiles to kill babies. But uh, we also know from history, wars tend to end either one side wins, as you just described, or there might uh, a stalemate on the battlefield. And right now, neither of those conditions are there, and so I suspect both sides think they can still advance their their aims through military objectives, and that's why the war in Donbass is going to go on for a long time, and it's going to get a lot, lot worse, in in my opinion.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, um, Director um, Brennan, um, I wonder what you make of the fact that we have near unanimity in this country. There is only, there are only a very small number of, of people, uh, Republicans mainly, who uh, oppose Ukraine and, and you know and do not strongly take the side of Ukraine in this. I can't call it a war; it's simply a terrorist act against a, a sovereign country. But you did have ten House Republicans vote against giving military aid to Ukraine. What do you make of that? <coughs>
5: Well, I think it's unconscionable. I think it also sends a very bad signal globally that we do have individuals in Congress and it's not just those 10 House members. I was listening to the comments of Rand Paul the other day, uh, whose ignorance of national security matters is only exceeded by the lunacy and the very dangerous sentiments that he expresses publicly. Uh, these are things that uh, for whatever reason, they do not understand the importance of what's going on in Ukraine right now, not just to uh, the Ukrainian people, but also to U.S. national security interests. And so therefore, I think this decision uh, that is moving forward in Congress and is going to be going to President Biden in terms of approving of $33 billion in aid to Ukraine is critically important because it sends a signal, not just to the Ukrainian people and to the government that we're behind them, but also to Vladimir Putin. We're not going to slow down. In fact, we're going to increase our support because it's a war uh, to stop Russian aggression against Ukraine and against the broader region overall. And so therefore, I don't, I can't understand how uh, American politicians of any stripe uh, are going to object to our continued support to what I think is really going to be a determining uh, uh, battle uh, in our fight against this Russian aggression.
2: Yeah, indeed. Uh, Director John Brennan, Ambassador Michael McFaul, gentlemen, thank you both very much. And still ahead, cheers. A brief moment of silence for Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene's memory. Apparently, she can't recall basically anything related to January 6th, which is either very sad or very calculated attempt to avoid facing the consequences of her actions. We'll be right back.
1: Ashley, for the love of home.
0: Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
6: So you didn't advocate—you uh, right never
2: advocated martial law, that President Trump should use martial law to stop, you know, the transition of power. You never advocated for that, did you?
8: I don't recall ever advocating for martial law. If you put that text message up, it's, it's clear and easy to read that if that's my text messages and that's what they're reporting, I don't recall if they are. But if they are, those text messages do not say uh, calling for martial law.
2: So, so you're saying you conveniently don't recall pitching a plan to overthrow the government, but if you did do it, it's okay, right? Because you were just passing the message along? Okay. So for anyone who needs a reminder, here is what Marjorie Taylor Greene texted. Quote, In our private chat with members, several are saying the only way to save our republic is for Trump to call for martial law. Do ignore the spelling. And we know that she's not the only one, with Congressman Scott Perry suggesting using the Director of National Intelligence to overthrow the election. Meanwhile, Republican House leadership is downplaying any critique that they've previously made of the insurrection caucus in their party, frankly, because the insurrectionists are the party. Otherwise, why on earth would Steve Scalise deign to say, quote, I'm sorry if this caused you problems to Matt Gates for suggesting that he may have acted illegally after the insurrection? And why hasn't Kevin McCarthy publicly defended his own comments about Gates pulling, putting Republicans in jeopardy? I mean, it seems like the only time in recent memory that he's been up in arms over behavior from a member of his caucus was when Madison Cawthorn accused Republicans of holding cocaine-fueled orgies. That, apparently, is the line that cannot and must not be crossed. All of this new information is coming to light as the January 6th committee is moving quickly. Moments ago, Chairman Benny Thompson announced they would hold their first of eight public hearings starting on June 9th. Ahead of that, they plan to re-up their request for Republicans, including little Kevin McCarthy, to appear before the committee by the end of the week. With me now, Congressman Eric Swalwell of California. He was a 2021 impeachment member. I wonder what you make of the uh, Marjorie Greene's new strategy uh, of just saying, I don't recall, sounds like she's definitely got a lawyer and she's been talking to them a lot, but she she simply doesn't recall. Um, and Kevin McCarthy's indifference to that lack of recollection.
9: Joy, they talk such a big game all the time. And then when they're caught literally on audio or text message, they shrink. I, I, I just don't get it. I mean, they project all the time, right? They call Democrats snowflakes, but these people are so afraid to defend what they said privately. You saw Scott Perry running away from another network's uh, reporter yesterday on the House steps. I mean, if this is what you believe, I don't agree with you. I think it's wrong. It maybe traitorous. But why can't you defend it? And again, they are so weak. Uh, they're so afraid. Uh, they're so cowardly. Uh, but what they want to do in private should very, very much concern all of us because Uh, If anything, they're even more emboldened by a Trump base uh, that is more and more, you know, supporting and more comfortable with violence than voting. And that's what we're up against right now.
2: Well, I mean, you know, the thing is, what's interesting is that Republicans have shown that when they do want to rebuke and police their own, they can. You know, they've come down like a ton of bricks on Mass and Cawthorn, not for his insurrectionism, not for, you know, sort of fetishizing Hitler's bunker, not for the bringing the gun into the Capitol, not for any of the stuff that most people are aghast by. But because he said the porn thing. And once he said yeah, that, uh, it does seem like a world of hurt. Is He's like getting leaked. The leaks are not coming from Democrats. They're leaking everything they can find on this guy. And even his own one of his the senators from his home state is out savaging him.
9: That's right. Joy, you can lead an insurrection. You can say that the Catholic Church is run by Satanists. You can sympathize with gun laws that, you know, embolden mass shooters. But the second you talk about the party's cocaine and orgies, you're done. You're toast. <laughs> I mean, that's really where they are right now. This is a party that is tougher on Mickey Mouse than they are on Russia, harsher on Dr. Seuss than they are on insurrectionists, and of course, uh, they have gone after Liz Cheney, who has you know shown consistent integrity through and through, uh, more tough than they have on Paul Gosar, who has threatened you know through images and videos to kill Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Joe
2: Biden. Uh, it, nightmare with me for just a moment, because you, you've had um, Kevin McCarthy, who essentially, you know, he, he's, he's not responding. He said, well, Trump had no reaction. He's basically saying, Trump excused me for saying all the, the truth that I really believe. There's billboards running in his home state, you know, basically calling him a liar. If he becomes speaker— he is a wholly owned property of Donald Trump, just like J.D. Vance would be, even though J.D. Vance used to say that Donald Trump might be Hitler. They're all Trump's property at this point if they get into leadership. Right. And so my question is, what then becomes of the House of Representatives?
9: Donald Trump is Speaker of the House if Kevin McCarthy were to win. And I want you to know we have no intention of losing the midterms. Uh, We have delivered. They have divided. uh, But Kevin McCarthy we would all be better off if his affair with integrity had lasted longer than a week. But he's gotten back together with the old uh, big lie. And the party of the big lie uh, is led by the biggest liar in Kevin McCarthy. And so there will be no backstop. There'll be no insurance policy. There'll be no guarantee that when the next coup or insurrection is planned, that the leader of the party, the Speaker of the House, uh, would clamp down and prevent it from happening. In fact, uh, he would just step aside and Allow whatever Donald Trump preferred to take place.
2: Well, you, I mean, Michael Luddick, who is a very conservative um, legal scholar and former judge, has said that openly. He, he did a CNN.com piece, which, which he said, yeah, the, and he laid out the way, the, all the different ways in which they are 100% planning to steal the 2024 election and lock in whoever it is, Trump or whoever, DeSantis, whoever they run. Let me play for you very quickly, Chairman Benny Thompson. And he was asked uh, by our uh, Ali Vitali here at NBC about leaked, uh, about these leaked texts. Take a look.
6: I think for somebody to, in leadership or any member, make a statement about uh,
2: his non-participation
6: or opinions, and ultimately it's found out that that's the complete opposite, it does not bore well for members of Congress. You know, people send us here to be truthful.
2: As true as that is, and he's a very calm man, Benny Thompson, he's a gentleman, but do you, inside of the Democratic caucus, do you think there is sufficient alarm about the clear determination up and down the ballot among Republicans from the state level all the way to the Congress and the United States Senate to implement the coup that failed last time and make it successful next time?
9: Yes, Troy. The the fear is that They are putting in place the building blocks uh, to ensure that uh, a Democrat would never win uh, at the highest office again and that there would never be a peaceful transition of power again because there would never be a a transition of power uh, because they, through anti voting uh, measures that they're putting in place from the candidates that they're nominating, look at Michigan, Joy. They have an attorney general candidate who is the Republican nominee who said he will put in jail the former attorney general if, if she loses. That's where their mindset is. Again, violence over voting. And and by the way, you know, with Kevin McCarthy as the leader, what Benny Thompson was alluding to there, he's lost the public trust. And it's up to the Republicans to nominate who they want to be their leader. If they want a 24-carat liar to be their leader, that's fine. We'll make sure the voters know about that. Kevin McCarthy is a member of the Gang of Eight. That is the most uh, intense, deepest dive that anyone in the United States gets on our intelligence operations and national security uh, plans and intentions. And he's proven himself to have been compromised by saying one thing and then publicly being shown to be a liar. And I don't think he should have that kind of access uh, if he's not a trustworthy individual.
2: Well, hopefully uh, the Democratic Party is and any sane Republicans out there are prepared to make that case vigorously on the campaign trail because the threat is real. Uh, Congressman Eric Swalwell, it's thank real. you very much, sir. Appreciate you. And up next, a book banning push in the Tennessee legislature sparks heated debate and protest. We'll be right back. Remember when a Tennessee school board voted to remove Mouse, the Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel about the Holocaust? I mean, maybe the board wanted to teach a nicer Holocaust, or maybe they're just good old-fashioned book banners. But now, they have the state on their side. On Wednesday, Tennessee legislators passed a bill that would grant a state-appointed textbook commission the final say on what books are deemed appropriate in public school libraries. During debate on the House floor, the Republican sponsor of the bill, Jerry Sexton, who has lashed out against librarians before, suggested that librarians were the ones signing off on these very bad books on library shelves. Code for grooming. We see what you did there, Jerry. But hey, he didn't really know how those books ended up there. What he did know was this.
3: What we do know is there's been books that's been put in our libraries that are obscene in nature, and certainly not uh, age appropriate for our children. Books that are pornographic.
2: Representative John Ray Clemens, a Democrat, asked for examples. And you can imagine how that went.
4: Can you give us a firm example of what school and what book
3: you're speaking of?
5: Representative Sexton.
3: I I can give you some off the top of my head, but I could uh, give you a a list of books. to my knowledge, I think it was, uh, and, and I may not have these numbers exactly right, but they're going to be real close. I think we found obscene material in something like uh, 93 out of 95 uh, counties in uh, school libraries. So they're all over the place.
2: All over the place. Yet he couldn't name one single school. Clemens then raised one of the key points in this entire book banning debate. Why is the state making the decisions about books instead of the educators?
4: I think it's fair to say what one person would deem inappropriate may not be what another person deems appropriate. And those who are adequately trained and educated and knowledgeable enough with the experience to make those decisions are called librarians. And we employ them and pay them with taxpayer money for a reason. I don't understand why we would be taking authority away from them to decide what is best in an educational setting.
2: But the the jaw-dropping moment finally arrived when Sexton shared what he planned to do with all these fake, obscene books. Let's just say Fahrenheit 451 doesn't feel so much like fiction these days. I will tell you what Sexton said right after this quick break. The Republican-led Tennessee State House just passed a bill that allows the state's textbook commission to approve or reject books in school libraries. When a Democratic lawmaker challenged the Republican sponsor of the bill— Well, the exchange felt downright dystopian.
4: Let's say you take these books out of the library. What are you going to do with them? You're going to put them in the street, light them on fire? Where are they going?
2: Representative Sexton.
4: I don't have a clue, but I would burn them.
2: (laughs) Joining me now is the Democratic... State representative in that exchange, John Ray Clemens of Tennessee and Sharon K. Edwards, president of the Tennessee Library Association. The mind reels, uh, representative. Let me start with you. So uh, apparently um, NBC News reports that there's another representative named Gloria Johnson, who's a Democrat, said the history has not looked kindly on those who banned and burned books. I'm not sure that is who we want to be included with, she said. And Sexton's response was, don't worry, there won't be any burned books because he's not on the commission. Your thoughts.
8: Well, that's where we are in the state of Tennessee right now. And sadly, across the country, we have the Tennessee GOP and Republicans across the country want to pull books off of bookshelves. And obviously, some of them want to burn them. You know, if we haven't learned enough from history, I think we're in trouble. Uh, This is this is where we are, uh, sadly.
2: And we are on Holocaust Remembrance Day. And so, you know, it's, it's really that, that conversation about book burning. We haven't—the world hasn't really had that conversation really since then. Or if you talk about the Soviet Union, we're dealing with all this stuff in Ukraine. You know, that's where people burn books. Did you ever get an answer to your question, Representative Clemens, about what specific books offend the the the, the representative who put this bill forward?
8: No, I mean, we've asked them this in committee, and this isn't the first bill. I mean, that's the thing. They've had multiple bills this year to remove books from bookshelves and to limit access to the Internet and place additional filters on the Internet. You know, they're, they're trying to limit all information to our children in any educational environment that they possibly can uh, and with some hopes, I guess, of, of trying to indoctrinate our children into whatever they subjectively deem appropriate. But no, I never got any answer from them. Of course, they don't have any examples. It, it's just all, you know, trying to score some political points in a very, very dangerous way uh, for whatever purpose. I, I don't know. But, you know, as someone with children, uh, my wife's Jewish and we, we're raising our, our, our children Jewish. Um and it's, it's very disturbing on, on this day and any other day of the year, quite honestly. We have seen this play out. We know how this goes. We know what this indicates. And I, it's, it's greatly disturbing. And it's, and it's really a sad time for our country.
2: It definitely is. I'm very glad to also have you here, Sharon K. Edwards. Um, I love librarians. I grew up, you know, running around the library. That was what my mom used to take uh, my sister and my brother and me to the library. We could just pick any books we want. We would have piles of them, and it was so joyful to just, you know, it was a discovery every week, you know, every weekend that we could go and hang out in the library. I can't imagine anyone wanting to limit that discovery process and that fun for kids. But this is disturbing. Even trying to say that we're going to take it out of the library, but we're also going to try to limit the access to books on the internet. The country that does that is China. That's what this sounds like. This sounds like communist China. Your thoughts on all of this?
10: Well, the first thing I'm going to have to say is that this is not a problem at all. For them to say that school libraries and libraries in general are providing obscene materials to children, that's a flat out lie. Um, Tennessee has a harmful to minors law on the books already. So if that were the case, we would already be in jail. The items that they have issue with are freely available to all ages at Walmart, at Amazon, or Parnassus in Nashville, at any other bookstore to all ages. And again, if they were obscene, that would not be the case. So we don't have an issue here. What we do have is an attempt at government censorship, which is when the government tries to remove books based on the ideology or any ideas in them, and that um, stops—well, that's a First Amendment violation, because we know that uh, per a court case, which I can't recall right now, but the First Amendment rights don't stop at the schoolhouse gate.
2: Yeah.
10: Let's talk about some of the people—
2: Let's talk about some of the people involved in this sort of commission. According to the Tennessean, uh, there's a woman on this list named Lori Cardoza Moore. And and part of her history, she stopped, you know, tried to stop the construction of a mosque. She spread false information about the election. She seems to be a sort of a MAGA Trump person. And very quickly to each of you, Sharon K. Edwards, does this feel to you like the attempt, as the representative said— to limit information so that they can indoctrinate children with a particular right-wing ideology instead?
10: I do. I do see that that is an attempt. Um, I would also say that it's twofold, perhaps an attempt to not only indoctrinate people and to um, uh, to limit the information that they receive and to skew history, to rewrite history, but also to break public schools. Yeah. Um, there's a whole layer of representative Clements. Thank you, by the way, for what you said about librarians and that, that was so sweet. Um, <laughs> but, um, he could speak more to this, but there's a whole thing in Tennessee right now with charter schools and yeah. public schools being money being pulled from it. There was a funding thing I think was passed today or yeah. yesterday. It's, it's a whole, a whole big old mess down
2: here. Yeah. No, well, let me, let me let you speak to that then representative Clements. Is this an attempt to break public schools?
8: Yes. And it's only one piece of the puzzle. So what they're trying to do is reduce conference confidence in our public schools. They've done it with CRT. They've done it with this. You know, books are a threat to the children. We just passed a funding formula today that opens up the floodgates for Hillsdale College. You know, Governor Lee has made it clear he wants Hillsdale College to open at least 50 charter schools in Tennessee.
2: Yeah, uh,
8: They are putting this puzzle together and one piece at a time. And this is just one more piece. And it's a very, very dangerous path down which we're heading. And it's all designed to dismantle our public schools as we know them. And I, I truly believe it's to limit the education and the full education of, of our students. And it, it is truly disturbing.
2: People should pay attention to this because this is what the old Soviet Union did. This is what communist China does. This is what they do in Cuba. This is not what we're supposed to be doing in America. Libraries are great. They're the greatest place on earth. And we should they should be open and free to our children. Uh, and what they're doing, that's grooming. That's what I call grooming. State Representative John Ray Clemens and Sharon K. Edwards, thank you. That is the readout for tonight.
1: The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.